So we had a warehouse in the UK and we had like half a million dollars worth of stock in there at any one time. And yeah, just one day kind of out of the blue, we got word that our warehouse had gone into liquidation and essentially lost our stock. It was an absolute nightmare and it it hurt the business not only over there but the business in the the core business in Australia. That's not only big money but that's a lot of stock. Hey, welcome to Ladyland, a podcast by Lady Brains, where we chat to ambitious women about what it takes to become an overnight success. Huge spoiler alert, the overnight success does not exist. We're your hosts, Caitlin, Anna, and Maver. Now get comfy, fellow Lady Brains, and ride with us to Ladyland. This episode, we chat with the co-founder of personal care and hygiene brand Moxie. You may recognize it as the brand of tampons in the cute pink tin packaging that's on the shelves of major retailers in Australia and also around the globe. The brains behind the brand is Mia Klitsis, who was just 21 years old when she thought of repackaging tampons into a tin container so they would finally stop getting lost in the bottom of her bag. To all the guys listening, please stick with us because we think you'll also get a lot from this chat. Mia shares with us her story on transitioning from working at one of the largest tobacco companies in the world, doing her own thing, how she lost half a million dollars worth of stock in the UK, and about her passion for social entrepreneurship, driving an initiative that provides women around the world with access to clean sanitary products. There's so much to love about her, and the thing we admired about her the most is that she's tenacious, she's comfortable sitting in the uncomfortable by breaking down taboos, and she sends a very clear message that you can do good business as well as do good in the world. We kicked off our chat by asking Mia to tell us what it was like growing up in an entrepreneurial family. My dad, he's from Greece. He was born in Greece, came to Australia when he was, he was nine. Yeah, so, you know, he, he went to school here, he studied here, and then somehow fell into the rag trade. So fashion, not the rag trade that I'm in. <laughs> the other one. <laughs> the other one. <laughs> so he sort of fell into fashion. And he became a knitwear manufacturer. And so he started his own knitting mill when he was 19, which, you know, in hindsight, that's that's mm. wild. Yeah, that's crazy. You know, yeah. 19. Think about what I was doing at 19. Don't ask me what I was doing at yeah. 19. Next yeah. question. Yeah, next question. <laughs> um, and so, I, you know, my parents are quite young. So, they, you know, mum was 21, dad was, I think, 23 or 4 when they had me. And so I grew up with very young parents and grew up with parents who were sort of entrepreneurial and had their own business. And that was just... You know, it was my childhood, it was my upbringing. I didn't really know any differently, I guess. And I spent a lot of time with Dad at his factory and um, he was based in Abbotsford, which, funnily enough, it's actually where we had our first office because we couldn't afford an office. And Dad's like, oh, just come and sit upstairs and, you know, <laughs> hang out. Um, but, yeah, I spent a lot of my childhood there and I learned a lot about, I mean, my dad still to this day is just an incredibly hard worker and he's not in knitting anymore. He's actually in, in food. But... Um, I didn't really know any differently. It's really strange. Um, my grandparents also, my grandfather was a carpenter, did his own thing. So I just sort of grew up around that environment. Definitely didn't grow up thinking that I wanted to have a tampon business. <laughs> no, that wasn't on your <laughs> bucket list as a child. <laughs> not on the bucket list, got to say, not on the bucket list. Did you always think that you were going to do your own thing though? This is strange. In like grade five, I think I won a, I won a, um, like a young writers competition at primary school. And so I was convinced I was going to be an author because I was like, Oh, I've made it now. <laughs> I'm a writer. Grade five. And so I thought, Oh, this, this sounds great. I wanted to be an author illustrator. 
And so I went through sort of my early years thinking, oh, I want to write books and, you know, tell stories. But I never really, really knew what I wanted to do. And I, I think I'd be lying if I said that I had this sort of entrepreneurial spirit in me. Mm. I was just a bit lost, honestly. Mm. I was just, I was busy hanging out with my friends and, you know, I was excited to go to high school and I was excited about everything that came with it and camps and the school socials and meeting boys and, you know, I wasn't really thinking about career, mm. to be really honest. Uh, and it probably wasn't even until I think I got my results in VCE mm. that I went, oh, I got some good marks. I could do something good. <laughs> um, and then, you know, I fell into marketing. But um, I sort of really went through my whole school years just going through the motions a little mm. bit and doing a lot of work experience but not really knowing what I wanted to do. And it's funny because I, I now am fortunate enough to speak at a lot of schools, girls' schools, and I meet young girls and – the first question I asked them when I go in there, I was like, okay, so how many of you, you know, know what you want to do when you leave here? And these are year nine and 10 girls and, you know, they're choosing VCE subjects. And, you know, I dare say probably 30% might put their hands up and say, yep, I know what I want to do. And I said, okay, who, who doesn't know what they want to do when they leave school? And the remaining 70% put their hands up. And I was like, yeah, I was you. I was you guys. Oh, yeah. And in hindsight, I do feel like it is, you know, there is a lot of pressure on young people not just young women, but young people to think about what they want to do with the rest mm. of their working careers because, you know, gosh, at that age. And, yeah, I certainly never thought that I would have been doing this. And yeah. it's all part of the fun, isn't it? Not kind of knowing where you're going. Uh, honestly, yeah, it yeah. really is. I think people ask me how I've been doing this 14 years and I think really what's kept me going is the fact that I've felt challenged the entire time. Yeah. And I've never quite known what's around the corner and – I like to think I'm a risk taker and, mm-hmm. you know, I was from the beginning, you know, ordering a container worth of tampons before I, you know, I'd even sold one. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd say that's pretty risky and I, I just really try and live by that philosophy because that's what keeps me challenged mm-hmm. and I know that the day that I stop feeling challenged is the day that I'll be like, okay, it's time to go. So I think that really is what's kept me motivated Yeah, is the, is the unknown. It's scary. Mm-hmm. It's petrifying. But at the same time, it's like I love to torture myself yeah. with it. <laughs> Bit of a thrill. Definitely. <laughs> so we definitely want to get into that story mm. and all of the other stories. But before we oh. kind of start talking about your current business, can you tell us a little bit about your early career? Like what actually happened after you finished high school and uni? Yeah, so it sort of started whilst I was at high school. So I studied a marketing degree at RMIT in Melbourne. And third year of the course was an internship. So you basically had to go out into the workforce and study for a year and then come back and finish your final year. And of course, you know, everyone wanted the, you know, at the time it was like the sexy job at L'Oreal or Mattel. And, you know, I can't remember how many students were in our year, but there was only a handful of spots. But again, young, naive, we all thought we were going to L'Oreal and we weren't. (laughs) Um, and I was a little lazy and sort of didn't even, I don't even think I put my resume in, which is so terrible. But anyway, ended up falling into a role at uh, Philip Morris, which is a tobacco company, which is really interesting because it was definitely not the sort of industry that I thought I would end up in. It's not something I necessarily agreed with as an industry. I mean, I've never been a smoker. I've actually never smoked a day in my life. <laughs> never even smoked. I'd choke, really, if I smoked a cigarette. And so I thought, oh, this is going to be interesting. But at the same time, I thought, I have to do this internship to graduate. And so I I took on the role and, yeah, it was eye-opening, you know, in in a lot of ways. It's a really interesting industry in that it's so heavily regulated that marketing is essentially really difficult. Mm. 
Mm. So you can't be seen to be marketing to people. You can't be seen to be encouraging them to smoke. And so it makes it made my job really difficult. Yeah, <laughs> what yeah, did you definitely. do? Especially as an intern. So I guess, you know, we did more sort of internal trade stuff. So we could educate the trade, um, but we couldn't really educate consumers. So there was a lot of focus on packaging and, you know, obviously product development, innovation. Uh, and ironically, I worked in the new products department. Oh I was God. in new product development. So not obviously creating, you know, blends and things like that, but looking at packaging design, thinking about, um, you know, little cues on yeah, on the pack designs, the branding, changing colours ever so slightly. Uh, it was really, really interesting, but I knew that long-term it was going to be quite restrictive. And, you know, I guess not only was the industry not going to be for me, but I just think the working environment um, was actually quite challenging. So it was it was quite male-dominated. You know, I did struggle at times, you know, being told that I was too young, I was, you know, too young to have an opinion, too young to get a pay rise, um, you're just a young woman, what are, you're just a young girl, rather, what do you know? That kind of language. And, and you know, I probably did let it get to me a bit more than it should have. But during that time, I met someone incredible who was sort of my immediate, who was my immediate boss at the time. And he was very, very senior, an incredible marketer, had been at that company for a very long time. But really, you know, believed in me and, you know, thought that my ideas were valid and mm. and we got along really, really well. So he almost, you know, was quite a mentor to me. And it was actually sort of during the time that I worked with him that the idea for Moxie was born. And um, he ended up becoming my business partner. So wow. out of, you know, out, of a, nice, out of a perhaps yeah, nice. somewhat undesirable situation, somewhere I thought I didn't want to be, came this incredible opportunity and here I am, you know, I'm still here. And if it, if it weren't for that, as you're exactly. saying, I guess it's a little serendipitous. If it yeah. weren't for that, then honestly, I don't think I would have done this. Isn't that lovely that you made the best out of a bad situation? I mean, maybe not a bad situation, but something yeah. that, you know, you weren't passionate about. Like, how do you also reconcile working somewhere that you don't believe in the product or the brand, mm. but you still have to go out and market it? How did you, you know, keep showing up each day was it because you had this opportunity on the horizon with you know yeah. your business partner it was a couple of things I think I think I mean in the early days uh, you know Moxie wasn't even a thought that sort of came much later I ended up spending uh, nearly three years at Philip Morris so I did my internship and then they actually kept me on and I sort of got to the point where I thought you know I feel like I'm doing some good work here and I'm learning and I need to do this so that is what kept me on despite you know some of the challenges but in those early days, I think really what motivated me was just, you know, the desire to learn. And I knew that I wasn't always going to necessarily be able to do something that I loved. And I may find myself in a situation where I may not, you know, want to do something or market a particular product or, you know, sometimes you just have to and you have to put yourself in the shoes of the consumer ultimately. I think as a marketer, it's beyond you in a way. And I think it's a sign of a good marketer if you can market a product that you don't necessarily connect with. A little bit like a lawyer maybe, you know, where yes. you may take on a case that you don't necessarily agree with and perhaps ethically you don't necessarily agree with it. And that that was challenging for me because I'm, I think I am quite sort of ethically minded and it's very apparent I think in our moxie business but uh, it's something I did struggle with. But I do feel like as a business, Philip Morris were, I do think that they conducted themselves really professionally and very ethically considering so I learned a lot about corporate affairs and I learned a lot about legislation and that was just really interesting to me. So I did learn a lot 
and I knew it wasn't going to be for me long term. Yeah. So I just thought, you know what, I just make need to get what I can, mm. make the most of it. And then, you know, when Moxie came along, I was like, oh, I'm out of here. Yes. <laughs> See ya. See you later. <laughs> so I want to know about that light bulb moment. Like, mm. was it something that was formed over a long period of time or was it instantaneous? Like, how? It's, it's funny. So uh, Jeff, who um, became my business partner, and I were having lunch at Nando's in Southland. Classic. Classic. There wasn't much around there. So our offices at the time were in uh, Moorabbin, Philip Morris used to be mm-hmm. in Moorabbin, and the local shopping centre was Southland. And, um, yeah, we were just in there having Nando's one day for lunch. And we were actually talking about packaging innovations. And at the time we were looking at packaging innovations for cigarettes, which was ironic because we were both non-smokers. And, again, we were trying to put ourselves in the shoes of the consumer mm. and we were trying to understand usability and the pain points and things like that. And so we were talking about, I think at the time we were working on Alpine, which is a sort of predominantly a, a women's brand. And we thought about how women would carry around these products. And I was like, oh, it's kind of like tampons. And so we started talking about that. So not dissimilar to, I guess, cigarettes. Tampons are little sticks in flip-top well, I was going to say, I was going to say the only correlation I can draw right now between <laughs> cigarettes and tampons is kind of the shape. So yeah. sticks, sticks in flip-top sticks boxes. Sticks in boxes. Yeah. yeah, to be super technical about it. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so we thought, well, um, oh my gosh, hang on, there's, there's some similarities here and that's something that I could relate to. So I could almost bring that experience to a different category, a different industry. And so we were talking around that and I said, actually, yeah, you know what? This is really problematic. Tampons in boxes are actually problematic. They always break open in my bag. The tampons fall out. They fall out into my bag or out of my bag entirely. Yeah, I'm getting nods. So yeah, yeah right? So it's <laughs> Can so relate. Oh, my God. Can I'm relate. just thinking, yeah, well, sorry. I was, yeah. <laughs> you know, and if you think back, really, I reckon every woman has a horror story about a tampon or a pad or something falling out into her bag. For me, it was always, I always seemed to have that like lone manky tampon at the bottom of my bag, just sitting there for ages. And of course, when I need it, it's like, this is all I've got. Can I use it? Is this hygienic? Will I or won't I? Will I or won't I? And so I was telling Jeff these stories and he was just kind of like, oh my God, like this is all new to Jeff. TMI? Yeah. I mean, how much did he know? Well, this is actually fun. This is a really interesting part of, I think, the journey because um, if you think about sort of just the two of us as people, you know, I was a young student, um, I was an intern essentially, he was a really senior guy, he was my boss and here we were talking about, you know, tampons and periods and vaginas really. So What a conversation. What at a Nando's. Convo. <laughs> at, at, uh, at Nando's over peri-peri chicken. <laughs> so, what a story. Right? Yeah. So, um, so we talked about that and, um, and we thought, gee, they should, you know, to all tampons should come in something more robust. You know, if they came in something like tins then well, they wouldn't break open as easily and, oh, maybe that would be great for cigarettes. And anyway, so we had a job to do. Obviously, we were working on cigarettes. But we talked about this idea for tampons and we thought, oh, that's something. We should maybe we should talk more about that. And we actually didn't talk about it for six months. Oh, wow. Six months went by. So this was probably like 2004, as early as that, and we didn't talk about it. And um, at one point I remember Jeff and I were walking through the tobacco factory. So glam. <laughs> Walking through the factory and I said to Jeff, oh, you know that thing that we were talking about? So I had this idea and he said, are you still thinking about that? And I said, well, yeah. Are you? He said, yes, I've done all this work on it. I said, oh. I said, but I've done all this work on it. And I'd like written a business plan and he'd gone and done all this concept stuff. Wow. And he said, okay, we better meet. 
And I said, why didn't you bring it up? And he said, honestly, I thought you'd think I was a creep. <laughs> he said, I thought you'd go home. I thought you'd go home and you said you'd say to your parents, oh, my boss was talking to me about periods and tampons and vaginas. <laughs> He's like, so I didn't bring it up again. Which is really interesting, actually, isn't it? I think the taboo, the, the taboo around it, and, and mm. even you know, perhaps what's considering <laughs> considering what's happening these days. I think you know, with you know, that sexual harassment is rampant, mm. all that kind of mm. stuff, and you know, bless him for being really aware. But obviously, you know, I was down for that conversation because to me this was a huge opportunity, and mm. so we said, hey, okay, let's catch up, let's talk. This could be a goer, and from that point, within six months. Six months later, we were on the shelves at Woolworths. Wow. What Which, a story. Yeah. From Nant, from peri-peri chicken <laughs> to tampons. <laughs> to tampons in tins on the shelf at Woolworths. And Moxie was born, yeah, in three variants. So we launched a mini regular and a super tampon in recyclable little tins. And that was a big part of it too, was having something that was a bit more sustainable. Uh, and it was, it was out. Six months is a pretty short period of time from idea or concept to being on the shelves in one of the biggest supermarkets in Australia. How did you get everything together in time to do that? I I don't really think we did. (laughs) It looks like that from the outside. But, uh, I mean, look, the biggest risk that we did take was we ordered a full container of stock. Um, We wanted to be prepared. And also I think it was the young, naive, you know, 21-year-old in me, 22, however old I was by that point, that was just gung-ho. I was just like, yeah, let's do it, let's go for it. And, you know, Jeff being you know, much older with more responsibilities. He was married with three kids. He was like, okay, let's just back it up a bit. Mm. But we were a really good team in that we sort of, you know, I was really go-getting, he was a bit more conservative and we met somewhere in the middle. And so I think that worked really well for both of us. Mm. But we did agree that we would go to the market prepared. Um, And I think what we had learned at Philip Morris and particularly Jeff, he'd been there so long and he'd worked in trade marketing and knew a lot about that side of the business. And we thought we need to be prepped. I mean, marketing was our jam. It's what we loved. Branding and all that was our jam. And actually, I'm going to dig it out once we're finished with this, but I've got our original Moxie tin prototype that was actually a mum deodorant can chopped off at the bottom with an eyeshadow lid as the lid. And we did like a dodgy little PowerPoint graphic (laughs) because we didn't have any graphic (laughs) skills. And we did a little dodgy PowerPoint graphic and we literally cut it, like printed it, cut it out and wrapped it around the tin. Wait, did you Talk take that rustic. to Woolworths? Um, <laughs> oh, God, probably. Oh, my God. <laughs> Cringe to think about it. Oh, God. I mean, prototypes were expensive. They yeah. were like, you know, 600 bucks each. And, we, you know, I th- we started with a couple of thousand dollars and we bought a laptop and a heater. <laughs> I was going to ask, yeah, yeah how much did you put in oh, we, we just We literally just put in our own money at the beginning. Mm. Um so we just, you know, it's like, what do we need? Oh, let's buy a computer. Let's buy some, let's buy a printer. It was really basic. We didn't know, we knew branding, we knew brand, we knew product, we were passionate about it, we knew a bit about manufacturing, didn't know anything about running a business. So like I said, you know, well, actually, even before we went to my dad's, we used my dad's office, we went to Starbucks because they had free Wi-Fi. Yeah. This is going back. This is, you know, going back a lot. This is well before, you know, social media. Mm. <laughs> going way back. It's crazy to think about it. So started at Starbucks, then moved into an office and really just kind of pieced everything together. I mean, with suppliers, we cold called. We didn't know anything. And, you know, we were – I was used to calling suppliers and agencies. Oh, yes, hello, this is Mia from Philip Morris. And, you know, people bend over backwards to help you because they know that you have an enormous budget. Mm. And I went from that to saying, hi, this is Mia from Million More. And they're like, who? From where? 
They had no idea. And so that was actually challenging. It was challenging as a startup with no history, no trading history, no money essentially to find suppliers and to get payment terms. And um, so, you know, ordering that container of stock was incredibly risky and it's probably the biggest, craziest thing we did. And it could have gone us up. It really could have. (laughs) It's funny because... I think my mom had said to me, what will you do if it doesn't work, if you don't sell it? I'm like, well, we've got a lifetime supply we'll of tampons. We'll have tampons for a really <laughs> long time. Um, but I feel like, you know, in hindsight, I think that's actually what did help us get ranged is that we did go to the retailer fully, not fully prepared. I don't want to make it out as if we had everything, you know, had mm. it all together because we didn't. We had three products that we really believed in. It was truly different. There was nothing that was truly persworthy in the world that we knew of at the time. Mm. And so we went in with, I guess, a true innovation and we went prepared. We had product on the water, it was ready to go. And so I think, you know, when the buyer at Woolies looked at, you know, saw it, and he was it was actually a guy. Our first buyer was a, was a guy. And I walked right. in thinking, he's not going to get it. He's not mm. going to get why this is important. He's not going to really truly understand the pain point because it's mm. such, it's really something that only women or you know, people who bleed um, mm. understand yeah. about these, you know, nuances of having your period and what we have to kind of deal with to manage it. He took one look at it and said, wow, this is really different. I've never seen anything like it. It's amazing. When can I have it? And, yeah, we were able to say, well, it's on the water. It'll be here in six weeks. And before we knew it, yeah, I remember I called my mum from the cab on the way back to the airport. She's like, how did you go? And I said, oh, we just got ranged in 800 stores. <laughs> And That's just unheard of. Yeah, and I think it's at that point I just went, holy, mm, like, what have I done? Oh, my God. Like, it's real now. Mm. Not the fact that I'd ordered a container of tampons. That wasn't real enough. Mm. It was only real when, when, I, when you got It was only real when we got rain. Was that one container enough to fulfil the whole order for Woolworths? Yeah, it was. Okay. But, it, but we pretty much had to reorder straight away. Yeah, so it was like a pipeline order plus some, but... We had, and we still do, it's actually a bit crazy. We've got quite a long production lead time, which isn't ideal. So hot tip out there, if you can shorten your production cycles, you're you're winning. Uh, So that was challenging, and particularly because a lot of it comes from overseas, you're relying on also, you know, shipments and things. So... Yeah, we're pretty much just in like constant reordering mode, which is tough for cash flow. I was just about to find the first shipment. Uh, So we, we managed to get terms from this incredible supplier who... Great. Bless them, honestly. Well, like I said, we hustled. We really hustled. But we managed to get terms. And back in the day, you were, I doubt this is even possible these days because banks are just so conservative nowadays. Um, But we basically went to the bank with our order from Woolworths, with our contract and our order. And we said, we've got a contract with with Woolworths, who's, you know, the biggest retailer in Australia. And... um, They've taken us in all their stores. We've got three lines in all their stores. This is their opening order. We anticipate this to be an ongoing business and we managed to get funding. I think we got 150 grand initially. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Out of that. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Crazy. That's insane. So can you tell us more about that pitch to Woolworths? Mm. I guess, you know, how did you establish that relationship with the buyer mm. and what? how did you tailor that pitch? Was it really all about the packaging? Mm. Is that what sold it to them? It's a really long time ago. It, it was like sorry. 15 years ago. But, um, but I do kind of, I actually remember, I remember, and I remember this buyer so vividly and I, I, 
I hope that I cross paths with paths with him again one day because I actually want to thank him. He wow. was really wonderful. And, you know, we'd heard all the horror stories about buying meetings and in fairness, a lot of those stories are true because <laughs> they can be really tough. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, we were a little gun shy, definitely. We didn't really know what to expect. We had heard the horror stories uh, about buyers being really difficult and, you know, all we could do was go in there, as I said, as prepared as we could be with all of our ducks in a row. And so, you know, we, we did our research beforehand. So we were fortunate enough, I guess, that we'd established some, some you know, good relationships through Philip Morris and through mm. um, even some of the agencies that we worked with and other people that had products already in the supermarkets, uh, a lot of salespeople, trade people. And um, we put together a really succinct pitch deck and I think that's important too. I think people go in there with reams of information and they forget that buyers have really got all that data Mm, (laughs) buyers are so equipped they know everything they probably know more than you know we all do and so I think it's important to be able to go in there and justify your reason for being I think that's critical if if you can show and demonstrate that there's a need for your product because a lot of I mean for us it was we were entering a very mature category with you know it was dominated by massive multinationals Mm. and here we were you know, two people going in this little tiny startup brand wanting to compete with the big boys and, you know, we thought we've definitely bitten off more than we can chew but we have to prove that there's a reason for this. And so I think just even, you know, for me to be able to go in there not only as, I guess, the brand owner and the developer but, you know, as a woman who had Mm. experienced a personal pain point and who had developed this product off the back of, my own personal pain point, something that I had experienced, something that I know my friends had experienced. Mm. I think there was a lot of credibility in that. And still to this day, I do all the buying meetings. So for 14 years, I've done all the buying meetings and I, and I still see all the buyers because I think this, you know, Moxie was, I created it for me and for my friends and for other women. And it does come from a very personal place. So I think in terms of the pitch and the presentation, being able to speak really openly and freely and not being sort of formulaic and, mm. You know, I didn't go in there. We, we went in there with a presentation, but it was very much a discussion. Yeah. And it was really all about this is why this exists. This is why the market needs it. Uh, and P.S., it's super cute. It's really cute. It's recyclable, <laughs> which, you know, at the time, I mean, cardboard boxes have always been recyclable, but most products came with plastic outer wraps, which yeah. they still do. They still yeah. do, yeah. We've never used plastic outer wraps ever. And we were all about not only the reusability, the recyclability, um, but, you know, the upcycling as well. So, you know, other things you could do with your moxie mm. tins. It was really, really different. So I think all those things combined, obviously it has to be at the right price too and has to be at the right margins for the retailer. And so yep. if you can get any intel from anybody who's been there before you to understand what trading terms are like, what margins are like, that's really, really helpful when you're doing your own sums. And then it just sort of saves you going back and forth with a buyer. And, again, it just shows that you're prepared. Mm. So you can go in there with a really good deal, show them why it's going to be great business for them and just essentially make their job a little easier. So you made a comment before about the fact that it was it's a, a product that's dominated by huge brands. How did you market yourself in the beginning? Like, mm. What did you do to get cut through? So the word moxie actually means to have guts, determination and courage in the face of adversity. That actually really stemmed from how I felt as a young woman in business, being told no, being told, and even, you know, when I started Moxie, when some of my 
old colleagues found out. They're like, oh, what a ridiculous idea. Like, who's going to buy tampons in tins? Like, what a stupid idea. That's not going to last. That's going to flop. Were they men or women? Men, but then also women too. Really? Which is quite sort of – and that was really disheartening for me. It because Yeah, and I think particularly as a young woman, there's, there was people that I looked up to and – they weren't supporting me. They weren't backing me. And I thought, gee, is, it, is this a crap idea? <laughs> what am I doing? But I think I was headstrong enough to just give it a go. And I'm really glad I did, obviously, in hindsight. We knew that we couldn't compete head on with massive multinationals. Like, you know, you've got massive brands out there that are doing campaigns worth millions and millions of dollars. And, you know, I've been in big corporate. I know what that's like. I, you know, I've had big budgets. It's, it's blissful. It's amazing. But I knew that that wasn't going to happen at Moxie, unfortunately. Not yet, anyway. And so we thought the thing that we can truly own is brand. And so um, to have Moxie actually means to have spunk, determination, courage in the face of adversity, which is very much how I felt at the time. So it was really about creating a brand personality that connected with women on a different level. It wasn't about a product that you bought because you had to buy it, because you needed it, because you were told that's what you had to buy by some you know big corporate. It was here's a brand that's been created from a really genuine place, <laughs> Um, as a result of a personal pain point. And, you know, it was all about making the whole experience a little bit, I guess, a bit nicer. Mm. So it was really just about establishing an emotional connection and it was all about brand. It was really all about brand and everything that came with it. It wasn't necessarily about product. I mean, obviously, I think when you're talking about products and innovation, I think a product has to at least be or has to be at least as good as what's out there. I think in some categories innovation is quite difficult, particularly in ours, which is quite heavily regulated. Mm. It's very, very difficult to innovate sometimes. And so we thought really all we've got, all that we truly own, you know, even packaging can be replicated. Tampons can be replicated. All that we really, really own is our brand. And so we were just hell-bent on building this brand. And, again, people told us we were mad because they're just like, oh, that's just puffery, marketing puffery. Again, (sighs) what a load of crap, you know. And we thought, but it's really all we truly own. And, you know, fast forward 14 years and I think I am so pleased that we did go down that path and we did focus on brand and we just took a really different approach to things. We Even the way that we spoke to our audience, um, like our, our launch campaign, our tagline was, have a beautiful day in hell. And it was pretty much, and it was on this, you know, gorgeous it was this juxtaposition between, you know, this beautiful looking ad and it was, you know, and the pretty packaging, it was very pretty, but then it had this rawness to it and this mm, edginess yeah. and it was just about saying, we know it's crap. We know periods can be really crap. Yeah. Mm. And we're not going to pretend that we all want to go run on the beach in white pants. Right. Yeah. It's not real. It's so yeah. And they were the ads that were out at the time. Was yeah. Women, you know, you know, prancing about yeah. like, oh, look how free I am and yeah. look how wonderful I feel and look at my tight white skirt. Yeah. Yay. And it's, you just want to crawl up into the fetal position and die sometimes. Yeah. So it's not, it wasn't real. And so I think we brought this element of realness to the category and that was really disruptive. Mm. So for the time it was really different and I think that's what allowed us to cut through. So, yeah, we did do some marketing and we did some advertising, but nowhere near on the scale mm. that our competitors did because we just couldn't afford it. But we had a really unique story and a really yeah. unique brand and it had a really unique voice and I think that's what allowed it to cut through. So it's just all about getting that cut through. And how has your marketing strategy evolved with the advent of social media? Mm. Have you engaged in influencer marketing? It's been really challenging actually Mm. because when, like I said, when we started, social media wasn't around. Uh, I'm sure influencers were around but not in, I guess, the iteration they are at the moment. 
and not as accessible either. I think now we're really fortunate that with the likes of Instagram and Facebook and whatever else, you can sort of reach influencers more directly. Mm. Uh, you know, at the time we were relying on advertising and, you know, traditional PR and things like that. And so in a way we sort of are traditionalists, like we come from that world. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so when social media, you know, came in, it really shook things up. And I feel like it's been a little challenging for us. I don't know... I don't, know, maybe, I don't know whether we just haven't cracked it yet or whether it's our category. I think it's probably a bit of both, if I'm being really fair. Yeah. Um, our category is difficult. And as we said earlier, unfortunately, it still is a little taboo. And, you know, we've, we've fought for 14 years to try and break, break down some of those barriers. But it's unfortunately something that people don't necessarily want to talk about. And, you know, and I've been in touch with some really amazing influencers and some very well-known influencers who, you know, I really respect as women and, and businesswomen and entrepreneurs um, and I've had some interesting conversations to them about getting them on board to work with Moxie and they're mm. like, I love it, I love the brand, I use it, but I'm just, I'm not ready to personally share my story. It's still embarrassing for me. It's still taboo for me. Wow. And I look and I respect that, yeah. but it's that's still happening. So I think we've definitely got some work to do in terms of breaking down those barriers. So I guess in the classic sense, influencer marketing has been a little bit challenging to sort yeah. of, you know, find people that are willing to align themselves with a Townfarm brand. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it's been great. Again, like I said, if anything, I think what I love the most about it is that it's given us more of a direct rapport with our consumers and I sit on the end of all of it. So I get all of the any consumer emails, any DMs, it all comes straight to me, uh, not because I'm a control freak. <laughs> people, <laughs> might, people might argue against that. But I just, you know, I feel really fortunate to be able to have that direct relationship with women that are buying my product we're always really, really open to feedback. So I think mm. social media has just been really great for that. And it's a different yeah. level of marketing in a way. It's obviously not mass, mm. but being able to speak to people one-on-one I think is really powerful. Yeah. Definitely. And something we were never able to do back in the day. I mean, we sort of did with sampling and sampling was really great for us because, it, you know, obviously it gets the product in people's hands and, you know, the tins are really cute and people always really like getting it once they receive it. But social media has just really changed the game. Mm. But it's just moved so quickly. Do you feel like you have moved the needle slightly over the mm. last, you know, 14 years mm. in terms of overcoming this taboo around talking about periods and, mm. you know, what goes on every month? Is it shifting? Yeah, it is shifting, definitely. And it's great to see that I think other brands, both inside and outside of our category, are starting to talk about it more. So we are really starting to embrace, you know, menstrual health sexual health and it's it's now it's it is it's so empowering for women and you know I I really love going into schools and speaking to young girls about not only you know career and stuff and how I got here but you know really talking about about periods and that it's okay to talk about so I think I feel like it's the younger generations that are the ones that are really going to move that needle Mm. because I think they'll grow up saying why is this and I've had school girls already you know speak to me and say Mm. why I didn't get why it's taboo I didn't mm. get why it was embarrassing for you. Why was it embarrassing for your friends? We talk about it all the time. And I'm like, you guys are amazing. You know, it's, I think it's those young women that are really going to change the conversation. Mm. But I definitely do think it is changing. I think, we, you know, there's organisations out there doing phenomenal mm. things like Share the Dignity and, you know, Essentials for Women who are, you know, encouraging brands and businesses and, and even people to think about their consumer choices and how they can help support women in need. So there's much more of a conversation happening, I think, more broadly as a society which will definitely help shift that needle. It's time. This is not taboo. We all go through this and, 
you know, I, th- I feel like if we can't talk, like there's so much that goes on in the world and there's, I feel like there are women out there in the world that don't have the voices that we do and they don't have the liberties that we do. We're so fortunate and I think if we can't use our own voices to drive change mm. and to drive that conversation, what chance do we have of helping those women that really mm. need the support and really need that push? So I think we've almost got a bit of a sense of responsibility mm. as well to open that conversation. So That's a nice segue into my next question. You have a bit of a passion for social entrepreneurship. <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so... Um, Someone had said to me once, and it was actually a, a guy, businessman, who I uh, respect like greatly, and he's been incredibly successful in business. And I think one day I just said to him, how did you do it? How did you do all this? And he said, you know what? You work hard and you give back and you just be a good human. And it's that simple. And he made it sound so easy, of course. And that just, that's really, it sounds a little cliched, but it has really stuck with me. So something sort of came, kind of came my way, I guess, that I couldn't ignore. And it was in about 2013. Uh, a friend sent me an article that talked about um, the really high rates of school absenteeism amongst girls in developing countries because they couldn't adequately manage their periods. So it's pretty horrific what goes on. But, you know, essentially girls were selling their bodies in exchange for sanitary pads just so that they could stay in school. I mean, and that's just like the tip of the iceberg. But ultimately, girls girls were not going to school because they couldn't manage their period. So whether they were being married off, you know, at that age or sent away to manage their period on their own uh, meant that they were missing out on a lot of school. And as a result, that was obviously, you know, really detrimental to their education. Parents would often pull them out if the girls couldn't keep up. And then, you know, you can imagine what their futures looked like. And this just, honestly, it hit me like a ton of bricks. And, you know, I'd been, at the time, I'd been in the business for, you know, 10 odd years or so. And I thought, how I almost hated myself for not having thought about it and I thought how like I'm in this industry and I've never really thought about what other women around the world are doing Mm. to manage something that we ultimately take for granted you know I've got a warehouse full of stuff at the back I would never think twice about running out but it's happening in Australia which Mm. I learned I guess a little later on which I'll talk about in a sec but anyway this particular article talked about um, specifically about what was happening in Uganda and so much like everything in my life, I just do things on a whim, start a business on a whim, go to Uganda on a whim, <laughs> went to Uganda. Love it. Went to Uganda and um, and hooked up with this organisation called AfriPads that at the time were basically employing local women to make cloth pads that they were then either selling at low cost or donating where they could to help keep girls in school. And um, very long story short, I sort of thought, well, hang on. I have a tampon business. Well, I have a, I have a sanitary business. You guys are doing this here. Surely there's something we could do together mm. to help these women. I just felt this immediate sense of responsibility. Mm. And I think it's like once you've seen it, heard it, you can't unsee it, it, you can't unhear it. And, you know, for me, it was like a knee jerk reaction. I just wasn't even a question. Mm. And so, you know, off we went. And so anyway, I caught up with these incredible people from AfriPads and we sort of thought, I thought, well, I don't just want to, don't want to come in as, you know, the white knight and, oh, you know, we'll help you, we'll save you. That's just, I think that's just insane. It's really irresponsible. And I didn't just want to provide a whole lot of Moxie product necessarily because that would obviously be taking jobs away from mm. local women. Yeah. Um, not only that, but the environment's so different. So everyone has to bury their rubbish. They, there's no sanitary disposal, mm. let alone yeah. just regular disposal. So that would be really unhygienic. 
and also because a lot of there's a lot of you know old wives tales and period taboos mm-hmm. women like to actually wash everything clean so mm-hmm. reusable is a not only a sustainable solution mm-hmm. but yeah. i just think you know culturally it was a really great mm-hmm. solution so long story short what we decided we would do is we would just basically use the profits that we generated from selling moxie in australia to help afri pads employ women and fund the production of reusable pads that we would then give away for free so that's what we did. So we started that pretty much immediately. I remember calling the office saying, get some stickers made, get some stickers made and get the reps to go out there and put all these stickers on any pack of Moxie pads that mm-hmm. is out there, put a sticker on the box, put stickers on everything in the warehouse and from now on put stickers on everything that we make and anything has got a sticker on it and it literally went on every single pack of pads that we made. The program ended up being called Pads for Pads. So basically for every product that had a sticker on it, we would use profits generated from the sale of that product to fund the manufacture and distribution of reusable pads for women in developing countries. Um, and so that's what we did. And it started immediately and it was incredible. And we supported uh, 15,000 women with each with, we say a year supply, but wow. it's reusable. So if, of course, yeah. if they look after it, it lasts indefinitely. And um you know, we sent in, you know, trained professionals. We did menstrual health, sexual health education, taught them how to care for their products. And a lot of those girls have graduated. A lot oh, of those girls have... So amazing. Yeah, they've, they've, I've heard stories of them travelling to the States. They're studying politics. Oh, wow. They want to be politicians in their own countries and help change women's rights. It's pretty insane. And I, I think there's a really good lesson in that even for me and I think for other people that perhaps wonder whether they're too small to have an impact Mm. or not wealthy enough or don't have enough resources or whatever I don't you don't have to I think to make a difference you know I think if you help one person and it was actually a woman's publication asked me that when we first launched it she said oh what impact do you really think you're going to make like you're a small business and we you know we were a small business she said what impact do you think you want to make and I was I got so offended (laughs) I got really Mm, offended by that and I said you know what I said if we help one woman the domino effect of that is so totally. great mm. that that's something. It's something. But we managed to help a lot more. And, again, you know, not only the women that were employed to make the pads, they were earning an income, they were then able to send their own kids to school, but obviously the women that were supported. So I just think the butterfly effect of helping even just one person is powerful. And so, you know, I think it's important if we think about our consumer choices, think about how we can use our businesses as platforms mm. to make change, you don't have to be big. You don't have mm. to be a big conglomerate with a lot of money. It's not It's not necessarily about throwing money at a problem. It's just about finding alternative solutions and just thinking a bit outside the square. So I'm, I'm really proud that even as a small business we were able to do that. And, you know, now we do, we do support locally, of course, as well. So we work with Essentials for Women in South Australia, Melbourne Period Project, um, the Share the Dignity, and, we, you know, we provide product where we can because it's happening on our doorstep. There's women mm. that are, there are at-risk women, there are victims of domestic violence that are living on the streets, that have you know, fled their homes, that don't have access to adequate sanitary protection. And, you know, every woman really does deserve to experience that with some comfort and with mm. some dignity. And so if we can help make a change, even just, as I said, if we help one person, that's something. Hopefully we want to help a lot more, obviously, mm. but... I just feel it's, I feel like we all have a sense of responsibility. And so if there's something that we can do to make change, then we need to, we need to do it. Actually, I was lucky that I was able to use my business as a platform to do that because the business had a voice. The business had a presence. I had products on the shelves. I could spread that message. It's Moxie. We've all got Moxie. And that's actually what Moxie is. Moxie is having that inner guts, that fierceness, that tenacity. 
and we definitely all have it. And we've all got it in different ways, but we've definitely all got it. I love what I do, and if I'm able to help someone, then that's... Even better. It, yeah, it's, it's bonus. Yeah. 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 Oh, God, that's <laughs> a hard one to follow. I feel like I no, no other question like, is really, yeah, know. you know, important anymore. I know. But, um, I wanted to pivot just slightly and talk about your other products. You know, you did go on to develop some ancillary products. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah. So we, a couple of years ago, we had an idea to, um, and again, because we've got this really great relationship with our customers, we sort of wanted to reach them more directly. And so we developed Moxie Box Club, which initially was a subscription service. And again, it was you know, Moxie's always just been about making periods that little bit easier and a bit more accessible and a bit less taboo and all the rest of it. Um, anyways, so the idea behind Moxie Box Club was that it was a customizable box, like a set and forget service, whereby you could choose the products that you wanted and we'd deliver them either every one, two or three months. That's kind of morphed over time and we've just morphed it again recently and subscriptions will be back. It's Currently it's just like a heap of different boxes with amazing things in them. But basically the idea was to just always, you know, I think even from the beginning I wanted to extend Moxie beyond just feminine hygiene. It wasn't just a tampon or pad brand. And thinking about all the other things that we need at that time of the month, it makes sense to provide them. And so it started with little things like, you know, feminine wipes. And I was like, oh, hang on, we need some chocolate in there too. So we started making chocolate. And then we did like mini hot water bottles. And then it's kind of extended out like as – the demand has kind of grown and, you know, women are telling us that they love these little ancillary products. And so we're creating things that are obviously still, you know, very connected to that time of the month or to self-care. So it's very much now about self-care. It's beyond just periods. It's self-care because, you know, there are women that don't necessarily get periods. Um, you know, there are boys who bleed too. There's, you know, our audience has, has shifted. So I think just diversifying the product offering has not only been really exciting, but it's allowed us to play in different categories as well. And it means I have chocolate on my desk 24-7. All the time. Right now. Which is amazing. Can <laughs> confirm. Can it's confirm. delicious. Yeah, it is delicious. <laughs> so good. It is delicious. Um, it's exciting and it's, you know, and there's definitely more to come. So there's a lot more of that coming. And that, as I said, I think my real passion is developing products and brand. And so being able to do that with Moxie and extend the range out beyond Femme Hygiene is yeah. Yeah, that's getting me really excited this year. So there's more of it. Yeah, there's more of it. That's exciting. And so you drive that, but do you also have Mm. a team that supports you with product development? Yeah, I do. Yeah, so we're still a really small team. So we're all really, really hands-on. And again, that's what I love about small business is that you understand where everyone kind of fits in and you can see how your work is impacting the greater good. So when I was in, you know, big corporate, I sat in my little silo and I thought I was doing great work, but I couldn't quite understand what that was doing for the broader business. Whereas here, like everyone touches everything. So Mm -hmm. whilst we do have like an NPD team, everyone's involved. So actually just last week we had a strat session and I got literally everyone in. I got the accountants in, I got operations in. Everyone was involved and I was like, let's talk ideas because anyone can have an idea. Mm. You know, everyone's living and breathing this brand. Everyone's involved. A lot of us are, uh, uh, you know, customers ourselves. (laughs) So I think anyone can have a valid idea. So we don't, I don't kind of have like this restrictive mindset in terms of sort of people having set roles. Mm. So there are definitely, obviously, we're each responsible for different things, but when it comes to ideas, it's like all hands on deck. 
So um, good collaborative way of yeah yeah it's yeah. a great way and I think it's a great way of encouraging your team to um, you know feel a real sense of ownership in yeah. what they're doing. I'm curious, how much do you think luck has fed into your success, and how much of it has been sort of orchestrated hard work, grit? In the early days, I would have said luck, 100. And I said it for a lot of years. And I was like, I was just lucky. Oh, we're so lucky. We're so lucky to get into Woolies. We were so lucky to do this. We were so lucky to export. But on, like, I think now, 14 years in, I'm like, no, I just I've worked my butt off. <laughs> I don't know if there was any luck, honestly, because there was bad luck too. If I look at it that way, if I think mm. about luck, I think I'd argue that there was also a lot of bad luck. But I don't think there was bad luck. I think I just made crap decisions and I made mistakes. I don't think I take them back because mm. I learnt a lot and I don't think I think if I wasn't making the mistakes I wouldn't have learnt what I had. Mm. I, honestly, I don't even think we'd still be around because mm. uh, business is really, really tough. Yeah, it's <laughs> pretty cutthroat. Brutal. But, yeah, so I think, look, I'm sure at times that there was definitely, I think maybe the luck was the, just the serendipity around how it all came to be. The universe, the gods were looking down on me and went, follow this path, go work at the cigarette company, it'll be great. <laughs> so I think there was definitely something in there. But I think, yeah, look, it's tough and it really boils down to yeah. just really hard work and um, growing thick skin and having that determination mm. and guts and going for it and not taking no for an answer and mm. but at the same time knowing when to call it and go, okay, yeah. that was a bad idea, let's move on. Mm. Can you tell us about one of your biggest mistakes? Oh, tell us about the bad luck. Tell Seriously. us about the bad luck. <laughs> how much time have you got? Like, <laughs> like in all seriousness. All day. Let's yeah. seriously. <laughs> This is now called the bad luck show. Um, oh my gosh. The biggest one that springs to mind and this spring, this is the first one that just, I think I'm so scarred by it that it's just front of mind all the time. Um, we went into the UK in about 2009, I think. So we actually heard from, I think it was like Tesco and Superdrug who wanted Moxie and they had seen it in Australia and it was doing really well. We were at the, you know, we were in Woolies, Coles, Priceline. So we had really expanded distribution and, Tesco and Superdrug really wanted it. And we weren't ready. We, only, we still only had three tampon products. We hadn't developed pads yet and we weren't prepared. And they said, well, pretty much if you don't give it to us, we're just going to rip it off. <laughs> we're going to make our own. And we thought, oh, my gosh, well, we have to get the jump. We have to do it. So we developed a full brand family, a full suite of products. We did liners, panty liners. We did pads. We did applicator tampons. So you can imagine the investment, like it was just mm, insane. Huge. And we weren't ready for it, but we were like, yay, let's do this. It's great. Again, 20 however year old Mia at the time, like it'll be fine, let's do this. So we pumped a whole heap of money into it, went into the UK, uh, didn't realise just how much money it was actually going to take. And I think navigating it remotely from Australia was mm. so challenging. Oh, I think retail over there is just it's absolutely brutal. It's almost 10 times more difficult than it is here. And particularly because you're doing it remotely and not mm. really understanding the competitive landscape over there. There was a lot of price discounting going on and we were just like hemorrhaging money. Um, anyway, so we had all of our stock in a warehouse over in the UK because we needed to, because again, long lead times and mm. um, shipping and stuff, you know, if a retailer placed an order, we needed to be able to fulfill it within days. So we had a warehouse in the UK and we had like half a million dollars worth of stock in there at any one time because we were servicing a lot of stores. Mm. And, yeah, just one day kind of out of the blue, um, we got word that our warehouse had gone into liquidation and essentially lost, and I'm saying that in inverted commas, lost our stock. So... 
oh my gosh, I said, ah, twitch. When I, oh I twitch so much. I know. Gasp, literally. I just twitch when I think about it. They lost our stock and, yeah, I mean, the laws over there are different and it was just a nightmare to navigate. And, uh, yeah, we essentially did lose that stock. I think we got a bit of it back, but we essentially lost it. Who loses stock? I don't know what they did with it, whether they sold it. As in it. physically lost? Lost. Well, like, well, no, well we, jury's out. The jury's, jury's out. out. We never knew. We never really knew. The, you know, the liquidators came in, so we just don't really know. I think they... I think they managed to sell off some of it and then we got paid for some of it. Like we got some money back, but it was an absolute nightmare. And it, it hurt the business, not only over there, but the business in it, the, the core business in Australia. It really hurt because that's just, that's not only big money, but that's a lot of stock mm. to replace. And so I think my learning from that was to not necessarily be perhaps bullied's not the right word because we weren't bullied into it. But I'd say pressured is probably more of a good word. And again, being a little bit naive and not wanting to be copied and, you know, having that fear. And so I think we did something prematurely that we weren't ready for and we, we shouldn't have. So again, my learning from that is just, I think you got to do things when you're ready. And even now, a lot of the businesses that I work with and the brands I work with through the side hustle, the brand makers, I really try and encourage people to think about scale and to not rush scale because everyone wants to, they want to launch and they want to scale quickly. And it's not for everyone and mm. it doesn't work in every category. It doesn't work for every brand. So I um, learned that the really hard way. <laughs> How did you recover from it? Like did you? I don't know if I did. You didn't. I don't know if we did. Honestly, I think we were still feeling the effects of that years later. Wow. And then, you know, we went into the, the GFC and that was really tough business-wise. So that it took a long time for the business to recover from that. Oh. <laughs> Ouch. Ouch. <laughs> yeah, that's a good yeah, yeah, I'm still here. I'm You're still, still here. here. Great. Still twitching. Didn't but, sink here. Uh, yeah, it's still no. twitching. It could have. It could have. Yeah. But, you know, it's one, of those, it's one of those challenges. It's one of those mistakes. And I'm like, well, I can just let it completely defeat me or we can just move on. And so we did. Mm. It was like, okay, what's next? What are we going to do next? Mm. Yeah, how do we recover? How do we recover? Yeah. 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 How important do you think is gut instinct in making those sorts of decisions? Critical. Mm. absolutely critical I'm a gut person <laughs> I think you're either one or the other mm. I think some people are like no I need all the hard I need the facts I need like an encyclopedic deck of research that gives me the hard facts whereas I'm just I'm gut I'm, mm. I'm gut first I think if you can back it up with with stats or research or whatever it may be then that's fantastic particularly if, if you're if you're pitching a product to a buyer mm. I think going in there and going my gut tells me <laughs> that this is gonna tells, work <laughs> my gut tells me you're gonna love it <laughs> <laughs> yeah don't know how that would go down trust me trust me trust, trust me. my gut my trust gut my knows gut. my gut knows that's my gut um so that's where that credibility piece comes in you know where you go well actually I'm a woman and I use this product totally. and this is real but yeah it's, I don't think it's enough to I think sell yourself on that but mm. I think for making business decisions your own decisions gut for me has been mission critical and I just mm. I really really believe in that I I've used it my entire working life and I don't think I ever won't mm. and yeah maybe it's led me to some bad decisions but I try and think of those bad decisions as just learnings totally, they were just yeah. learnings they were learnings I needed to do those it's fail fast fail, fail, fail fast fail, fail forward and so on the flip side what are some of your biggest wins Aside from getting into Woolworths and obviously even the idea of Moxie, yeah. what do you think has been one of your greatest wins? I think just being able to establish a really loyal following, a really loyal customer base. So um, our customers are incredibly loyal to Moxie. They call they call themselves Moxettes, which is not a term that I 
coined, which is amazing that that came from the tribe and that started on Facebook. They would call themselves Moxettes, which I just love. And to me that just says that there's a real sense of ownership out there and that and truly, like honestly, it is their brand as much as it is mine because I wouldn't have it if it wasn't for them. So I think the fact that we've been able to establish that off the back of people saying, oh, building brand, oh, focusing on brand, oh, that's rubbish. You've got to do marketing. You've got to do product innovation. You've got to do... And, yeah, that stuff's important. But I think, you know, the fact that we were hell-bent on brand and establishing an emotional connection and the fact that we were able to actually establish that and maintain it for this long is, I think, really powerful. So I think I, I would call that a win definitely. Um, I'd say, you know, getting into Woolworths off the bat as our first retailer <laughs> Getting into 800 stores was definitely a win. Yeah. Being able to achieve eye-level positioning in a premium spot was a win. We're actually just about to launch into Watson's in Europe. Wow. So that's wow. been a big win. Cool. Yeah, so we're launching in a couple of markets with them in the next couple of months, which is really exciting. So that's also a win. And, again, a little cheesy, but honestly just being able to do my own thing Mm. and develop and execute my own ideas and see them come to fruition and not have people tell me that they're crap ideas and being able to see other people empowered and excited to see their ideas come to fruition is a huge win. Like I think, you know, job satisfaction, 11 out of 10 would do again. So for anyone out there that is, you know, considering starting their own brand, what, what advice would you give? You know, you've obviously got 14 years of experience. So can you share? Can you share with us? Yeah. As I said, I'm really fortunate to be able to touch other brands now and work with other brands because I think the landscape's very different to when I started. And I'm seeing a lot of people coming through now with, you know, great brand or product ideas, but they haven't necessarily thought about the commercial realities of taking them to market. So I guess first and foremost, you have to think about, is this product unique? Is there a market for it or can I create one? I think really good marketing is almost convincing people they need something before they know they need it. Um, and so I would, yeah, I would just, you know, really urge people to think about the need in the market and also the commercial realities behind it. So what a production lead time is going to look like? Where are they going to get it manufactured? How much stock are they going to need to hold realistically? What's the outlay going to be? How much do they think they can sell it for? And they may not have all the answers up front, but I think a lot of those, a lot of those critical things, they can really stump you if you've gone too far down the process and then you go, oh, oops, I need money. If you can kind of think about that stuff up front, it's really helpful. And the other thing I think from more of a marketing perspective is to really think about your audience and think about who you're selling to. Because some people, you know, we've had clients come to us saying, I don't know, as an example, I love making earrings. And I'm like, that's awesome. Your earrings are beautiful. But there are so many other earrings out there. Why are people going to want to buy your earrings? Who are you selling them to? Who is your ideal customer? And I would almost like create a a personality around your ideal customer and really know who you're selling to because I think having that very clear focus and direction, um, well, it allows you to focus your marketing efforts and your dollars. So it's not dissimilar with Moxie. Like our, I guess our core, our core audience in terms of how the brand looks and speaks and acts and feels is 18 to 24. So I was, you know, 21. I was smack bang mm-hmm. in the middle when I launched And so I was making it for women like me. And, of course, we have much younger women that use Moxie and much, Mm -hmm. much older women that use Moxie. But in terms of the brand and how it looks and acts, it's an 18 to 24-year-old. And that really helps us to focus all of our efforts. So when we're coming up with new products, when we're designing packaging, when we're designing ad campaigns, we're thinking about that customer in mind. Mm -hmm. And so I would, yeah, I would would urge um, any brand or any startup to always, 
always like never lose sight of mm. of who they're talking to. So we'll just finish up with some final wrap up questions. The first one is who inspires you? Oh, I'm one of these people like I find inspo everywhere. Like I find inspo from the person I meet at the coffee shop, from my niece who's three years old who says some insane things to some phenomenal business women that and men that I have been fortunate enough to meet along the way and and I'm very lucky to call a lot of them my friends right now but I do think inspo is everywhere and I I made a point very early on to be really open and I really believe you can be inspired from anyone anywhere and so as I said like a lot of my mentors and they're not sort of official mentors they've become friends but I still call them my mentors because I learn so much from them you know anyone from um, photographers to firefighters to you know women in tech it's crazy it's everywhere like just be open to it Mm. what makes you a happy person what brings you joy I think seeing the people around me happy makes me really happy and I think feeling challenged actually makes me happy. I think I said it earlier on, I kind of love to torture myself with challenges. <laughs> and, I, I just, yeah, I think that actually does make me really happy. And, and honestly, simple things like chocolate, walking my dog, just being around friends. Like, honestly, it's just the simple things at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, like business is really hard at times and I often have those moments where I'm like, what was I thinking? Why did what I do I this? Doing? Why did I do this? But, you know, as my husband tells me, he's like, you love it. You love it. You wouldn't last five minutes doing anything else. And so it's true. So I think that I'm just actually really happy just doing what I'm doing. And obviously, you know, being able to do any of the sort of, being able to help people in any kind of way Mm. is just, again, it sounds really cliched, but it is so rewarding. And that's just, and I don't think that's a bad thing. I think people often feel guilty about, they're like, it's so selfish. I feel like I'm doing this selfishly because it makes me happy. I'm like, no, it's bloody amazing. It should Mm, make you happy. Mm. Um, And that, yeah. Of course, that makes me really happy. And finally, what's next for you and what's next for Moxie? Well, the brand maker is really kind of taken off. So that's the side hustle. So that's where Mm. we sort of help brands essentially do what we did with Moxie. So Mm. we help develop the product, try and uncover what that core unique proposition is, and then we help take it to market. So if you need me to pitch a product to a retailer, (laughs) let me know. Um, So that's actually great. I'm enjoying that. I'm really, really enjoying that. So doing a bit more of that now. Uh, But Moxie is growing. Moxie is exporting more. Moxie Box Club is expanding. As I said, there's more kits. There's a lot more products coming. There's more SandPro products coming, which are really different for us, which is very exciting. But they still will, they will be Persworthy. They still will be very, very Moxie. I'm just really pumped that, you know, 14 years in, I think we're really refreshing the brand. So we've just gone through a pack redesign, which is was scary but exciting. We went from sort of very pretty candy stripes to a more contemporary, like really beautiful pack. And so that's been really fun. But now translating that across the range and across all the mm-hmm. assets that we've built for mm-hmm. 14 years yeah. and changing all that over is really, really challenging. Mm-hmm. So Big piece of work. Big piece of work in the midst of that. But, again, still challenged, still mm-hmm. excited. So I'll be here probably for another 14 years, <laughs> I hope. Yeah, I hope. Great. And we'll come back and interview you again. Please do. Yeah. I'll bring the chocolate. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Done. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for having that me. That was fun. Oh, it was awesome. Thanks for listening. Please be sure to subscribe to our podcast. Follow us on Instagram, lady.brains, and head over to ladybrains.com.au to find out more about our events and other cool things that are happening.